Well, good morning, church. Um, if you are new and you don't know me by chance, I am Josh, and I'm the pastor to children and youth here at Hamilton. Um, it's a pleasure. But today, my role uh, is added to just a little bit. Stephen is not here. He and Dave are in Ghana, or if they're not there yet, they're on their way. And so I uh, get to bring God's word to you, and we'll be in Numbers chapter 22 today. And if you're using the Pew Bible, that's going to be on page 130. So that's Numbers 22, and on page 130 in the Pew Bible. And as you're making your way to Numbers 22, I just want to give you... uh, just maybe a sneak peek of the outline for today's sermon because it's going to be a little bit different than perhaps normal. Uh, You may even have been reading through the Bible or are reading through the Bible with us as the church together. And so we read this on Thursday. And that was why uh, I chose this actually. I wanted it to be a passage that was familiar to you. You've hopefully read it recently. And so with that... This passage, I, wanna, I want to give us that context. What's led us up to Numbers 22? And so we'll spend a little bit of time in context. Then we'll read the passage. We're going to read the whole passage. It's 41 verses. And then I'm going to just explain it. Walk through it. Hopefully um, it, it will help you understand it. Pick up some of the key things in it. And so at that point, we're just, we're kind of like an airplane making our way up, right? And then once we actually get to the the two points I want you to see from the passage, that's really almost like we're going to be, we're going to start descending again. We're not going to spend a whole lot of our time on these two points. Although I think once we we look at the passage and and it's explained, I think they'll be very clear to you. And so there won't be a whole lot of explanation for each of the two points, we're going to explain the passage, look at the two points, and, and try to apply them to life. And so um, if we get 25 minutes into uh, the sermon and you're like, Josh, we haven't even hit point one yet, stay with me, okay? I promise the plane will land. And um, even as we read Numbers 22, it's a long passage, so stay with me. So if you would, pray with me now. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us that we might know you, that we might seek you through it and respond in worship, respond in obedience to it. But there's also times in your word that you want us to know your character and that it would encourage us to live. And so I ask today that you would help us to see who you are in this passage and that it would encourage life today and tomorrow and for however many days you give us to live. And so it's, it, it, it's by our confidence in your word that we ask you to, to change us today. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So we all know those people Those people being, sometimes we know people who, despite life circumstances, it seems like everything goes right. The odds could be stacked against them from an earthly perspective and somehow it turns out right in the end. 
life looks all rosy, like peaches and cream. We, we can all even maybe even think of that person right now. And I think if, if we look, even the New, New England Patriots were like that this year. Right? They start the year going into the year with arguably the best quarterback in NFL history being out the first four games of the season. 25% of the regular season, they're playing without probably the best quarterback in NFL history. And they're back up through four passes the year before. And he only completed one of those four. So it's not looking too great to start the season out. And so even if they could just perhaps win two out of the four games, Tom Brady, when he comes back, can escort the Patriots into the playoffs. And it actually turns out better than that. They went 3-1 and one in the first four games. And Tom Brady did escort the Patriots into the playoffs. But not just the playoffs, even to the Super Bowl. And before the game starts, the Patriots are favored. Right? They've got Tom Brady, Bill Belichick. What else do they need? Well, the game starts... And they're up against the best offense in the league this year, the Atlanta Falcons. And two touchdowns into the game, it's 14-0 Atlanta Falcons. And according to ESPN Analytics, it's 86.2% chance the Falcons are going to win. They're up 14-0. Halftime comes into the third quarter, six minutes, four seconds left in the third quarter. And the Falcons are up 28-3. to According to statistics, there's a 99.7% chance the Falcons win. And if you're not good with math and numbers, that means three times out of a thousand do the Patriots have a chance to win this game. Right? Well, what's Tom Brady need? He just needs one time because he wins the first time. They tie the game up, go into overtime, first play in, or first drive into overtime. The Patriots go down, score, and win the game. Against all odds. Seems impossible. Well, I like you to even think about the Israelites in the Old Testament, like the New England Patriots. Odds look like they're stacked against them. Yet, because of their God, over and over and over, because of his faithfulness to his blessing upon them. He gives them what he's promised them. And that promise goes all the way back to Genesis 12, when to Abraham he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. You're going to be a blessing to the nations of the earth. I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. And so they are this people that are supposed to inherit this land that we call the promised land. And if you know anything about Abraham, at least at the beginning, it seems kind of absurd because the Lord tells Abraham, leave your family and he becomes a nomad. Leave your family, leave your land. And if you know this, nomads have no land. But yet, God tells him, you're going to have a great family that's going to number the stars in the sky, the sands on the seashore, yet he has no children. 
and I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give your offspring this land. Yet God's calling him to be a nomad and go to this land that he's not yet showed him. So it's in the fourth quarter of Abraham's life, or even perhaps his wife's barren, or, or, or her years to be able to give birth. She may have even been in overtime. Yet God gives them this child. He fulfills this promise. And then just a few generations later, after Abraham's death, we see this family going into Egypt due to famine. They go in as 70 people. They come out 400 years later with over 1 million people. God's being faithful to His promise. God's fulfilling His promise to this nomad with no children. And then He takes him out of Egypt. He takes Israel out of Egypt. And they become nomads again with no land. But God's promise is still there. You are now a great nation, but I'm going to take you to your land. And so hopefully, hopefully, as you're reading through the Bible, you're seeing even now in numbers, God is moving His people closer and closer to this land, fulfilling His promise. And so as we are about to look at Numbers 22, I want you to see two things from this passage. The first thing I want you to see is that the Lord's blessing cannot be thwarted. It cannot be stopped. And the second thing I want you to see is the Lord's blessing may come in unexpected ways. And like I said, this passage is long, so get ready. It's going to be at least six minutes, closer to seven minutes of reading. And as we read, there's going to be two main characters, Balak and Balaam. Balak ends with a K, so think king, in case you you get these names mixed up. Balak ends with K for king. Balaam is the prophet. So read now with me Numbers 22. Then the people of Israel set out, encamped in the plains of Moab, beyond the Jordan, at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw, that Israel, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was, great, was in great dread of the people, because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people Amah, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I, have, I, will be, I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their land. And they, became, and they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring, bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam 
And God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Once again, Balak sent princes more in number and more honorable than these. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do do great honor, and whatever you say to me I will do. Come, curse this people for me. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. So you, too, please stay here tonight, that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. But God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled. And he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, I am, not your don- am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. And, the- and he bowed down fell on his face, and the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and left her alive. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me, Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. 
And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. When Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, on the border formed by Arnon, at the extremity of the border. And Balak said to Balaam, Did I not send to you to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come to you. Have I now any power of my own speak to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak, that I must speak. Then Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiriath-Huzzath. And Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep, and sent for Balaam, and for the princes who were with him. And in the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him up to Bamoth Baal. And from there, they saw a fraction of the people. So Israel's making their way to the promised land. And in this passage, they get near. It even says they get just across the river from Jericho. And who stands in their way? Moab. And so we see now what's this next obstacle. It's Moab. And really, Israel's made their way despite their own sin. They've made their way all the way to Moab. So then there should be this tension. What in the world is Moab's chance of withstanding Israel and their God? And we even see here in Numbers 22 that that again, God is fulfilling His promise, right? They're great in number. According to verse 3, they're many. Verse 5, Israel covers the face of the earth. And so this brings fear into the heart of Balak. And, and so he really, what are his two options? You see, a, a, a nation that's great in number. The two options I can think of is either... You're in fear and you surrender. You call for peace. Hopefully you can preserve your, your people. Or you can fight. And Moab chooses the second. He sees Israel as a threat. And so he chooses war. But he knows he needs help. So he doesn't settle for some half-rate prophet risking the, the loss in battle. He goes for the greatest. He goes for this, if you want to call him a super prophet, he's known throughout the whole region and sends delegates to Balaam. He sends his people. And why does he want Balaam to come? Because he knows. He, he even says there, Balaam, whoever you bless is blessed, and whoever you curse is cursed. And I hope as you hear this, your ears perk up. Because it's not a coincidence this shows up in the passage. This should be putting in your mind this tension. Back to Genesis 12, right? What does God say? Those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. So it's not an accident that the writer puts this in here, saying that Balaam, Balaam, whoever he blesses will be blessed, and whoever he curses will be cursed. We see Balak in direct opposition with God. And it's not by accident. 
And what do we see? These delegates come to Balaam. They tell him all this. You're so great. They, they smooth him over with, with nice words. Would you come? Would you come curse these people who have just left Egypt? And so Balaam looks kind of godly. We even have this tension with Balaam. We see he appeals twice to God, right? He tells these people, you've come to me. Give me a night. Stay with me. Let me talk with the Lord. And then I'll have a response for you. He seems much more like a politician, I think, if we look at it more carefully than a prophet of God, though. Just because one appeals to God, uses God's name, doesn't mean that he is necessarily God's prophet. And we even saw that from John's reading of Second Peter 2. Balaam was hungry for greed for money. And so these delegates come. They say, will you go with us? Balaam says, let me spend a night talking to the Lord. And what's his response? He tells them, God said, I can't go with you, which is true, but it's not everything. He leaves something out, right? He leaves out what God tells him, you shall not curse the people. Why? Verse 12, because they are blessed. These people are blessed by God. Therefore, Balaam is banned from cursing. But he leaves that out. And he just tells these delegates, I can't come with you. God said, I can't go. So the delegates go back to Balak, the king. They tell him, well, Balaam says we, he can't come. Balak's not deterred. He says, all right, let's get a, a greater group to go, a, a more honorable, a more noble group to go, let me send out another group to Balak because he's not just going to tell me no. Perhaps I'll even send more money to him. And again, Balaam appeals to the Lord. He says, stay with me another night. Let me go back and talk to the Lord. And perhaps you even see the same thing, right? With your kids, you tell them no. And what's, if they really, really want it bad, do they stop with just one no? No, they don't. They come back. And they come back. Because they hope for a different answer. I think Balaam in his greed is wanting another answer. Greedy for money. Perhaps the Lord will change his mind. And let him go. And even though Balak has rolled out the red carpet, right? Sending more noble, more people and even a little bit more money, perhaps he's going to come. And so the Lord says, this second encounter, you can go. But we see that it doesn't please the Lord for him to go. And the tension heightens even more here. God allows him to go, but it angers him. And God puts this angel, this sword-wielding angel, in front of Balaam. And so the tension heightens. There's Balaam who's, who's only going because he's wanted to curse God's people versus the God who truly blesses or curses. And so this super prophet Balaam against the God 
who blesses and curses. Who's going to prevail and what's going to happen? That's hopefully what's in your mind and, and even perhaps even in your heart as you're reading. Like, what's going to happen? I want to know. And there's a, a good bit of irony here, right? This super prophet Balaam is on his way to meet Balak and he can't even see what's right in front of him. He's supposed to be able to pronounce blessings and curses for what's going to happen in the future, but he can't even see what's right in front of him. But a dumb donkey can. This dumb, stubborn animal can see what's right in front of him. And this third encounter is now, is after the third encounter with the angel, is when the donkey opens his mouth. When he speaks and he talks to Balaam. And then the angel opens Balaam's eyes and he says, You may continue, but you can only speak what I tell you. Remember, Balaam's words are what got him hired to begin with. Right? It's this prophet who's supposed to be able to bless and supposed to be able to curse, but. This angel of the Lord is saying, you can only go if you're going to speak what I tell you to speak. And so it's like Balaam is just this little pawn in God's hands. This time, God's not even there. He's sending the angel to tell him, you can only do what I say. You can only speak what I tell you. And so God's using Balak and Balaam and the donkey for his purposes which is his purpose for blessing Israel. So I want us to look now. Point number one, the Lord's blessing cannot be thwarted. It cannot be stopped. And, and part of why I like this passage so much is because of this tension we see between Balak and Israel and Balaam and God. And so we're looking for this answer. Will blessing or curses come upon Israel? Who's going to be mightier? Who's, who's more powerful? Is the Lord really who He says He is? Is He really going to be able to fulfill what He's promised? Is He really going to be able to bring the people into this land that they desire? And so Balak knows he's not mighty enough to stop Israel Right there in great dread, verse 3. Moab was overcome with fear. And so they've joined forces, Balaam and Balak, to try to defeat Israel and their God. And God says, I'm not going to allow this. Right back to verse 12. Balaam, you cannot curse the people because they are already blessed. You can't do anything about it. And so this tension of now, not yet, right? God's already provided the provision or He's made them into a great nation, but He's also made this promise that He's not fully fulfilled yet in bringing them to the land. But God says, even though it's not theirs yet, it's already theirs because of who I am. I am the one who blesses and curses. You can do nothing, Balaam. And so that brings us to, to, to Christian, we're not Israel. 
We're not promised that your individual family is going to be numerous as the stars in the sky. You aren't promised you're going to inhabit a perfect place right now. So what does that mean for you and I? Well, I think part of it is that you and I have these promises of God. It's not promises of wealth and not promises of health, not financial prosperity or happiness. But we do have promises from God to us as His children. Just take, for example, Matthew 16, 18. Jesus tells, He says, I will build my church. Right? It's not up to you and I's clever devices to build this church. It's not up to us to make followers of Christ. Jesus Himself says, I insert promise. I promise that I will build my church. It's going to happen. He continues to build His church. And He does this. It may be difficult to see sometimes. But even just take China, for example, where persecution is great. According to an article on Slate.com, in 1949, there was no more than one million believers in China. Fast forward, 1982. It's estimated 3 million Christians in China. Fast forward again, 2010, 58 million Christians in China. God is building His church. It's His promise. He's going to do the work. He's going to send out laborers who will bring in His harvest. God's going to save no matter what. Okay, but what else? Hebrews 13, 5 through 6 says this. Listen, this is a promise to you and I. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do against me? The Lord will never leave you or forsake you if you're His child. I hope that brings comfort. No matter how bad life gets, how dreary it looks, like the rain and the winds prepare the plant for moisture in the ground and strong roots when the sun comes to blossom. The Lord will never leave you nor forsake you in your times of trouble. He is a very present help in your times of trouble. And because He will never leave you, what's the promise or what's the result for us? You're free from the love of money. The Lord's not going to leave you or turn His back on you. So free yourself from love of money. Be content. And then verse 6 in Hebrews 13 said this, So we can confidently say, not like, I think I can say. I can confidently say the Lord is my helper. You can confidently say the Lord is your helper. I will not fear. What can man do against me? What can man do against you when the Lord is your helper? Or take, for instance, Romans 6.11, another promised blessing by God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin 
and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Not you should, not you might if you're really good on your behavior. You must, if you're a child of God, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. So what's that mean today? You struggle with sin, right? You haven't fully put off all sin in your life. Take heart. Don't give up. Because you, your old self, has been crucified in Christ. You've been made alive in God. So the sin you struggle with, don't give up. Don't let Satan deceive you to think, I'm never going to kick this habit. It's impossible. I might as well just give up. No, instead, you've been forgiven. You've been freed in Christ. And even think about it like this. It's not just you've been freed in your behavior. God even frees you, is wanting to free you from your desire for sin. Imagine that. Not just that I struggle and I keep off sin, but God wants to so work in you that He will free you from your desire or your love for sin. That's probably the greatest freedom you could have. That God might free you from your desire for sin if you would just ask Him. He wants to. This is a blessing. I hope you see that. That sin no longer rules over you. How about another blessing? Philippians 1.6. You guys are probably familiar with it. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Paul says there, I am sure of this. Not I hope it's going to happen. But I'm sure. I know it's going to happen. Because he's began the work, it started with him, he did the good work, he's not giving up on you, he's going to keep working. You one day will be complete in Christ. That brings joy, that brings hope, that helps me know today is as bad as I'm, I'm going to be. God's working, he's continuing to do his good work in you, he's continuing to work on you. This good work's not dependent on you. It's dependent upon God. And He will complete it. That's a blessing. You, as a Christ follower, have the blessing, the promise of knowing that our God, who's begun a good work in you, will not stop. And so we see the Lord's blessing. We see He will not be thwarted. He will not be stopped. Not His enemies can stop Him. You can't even stop Him. Right? Even Israel's sin, as they're in the wilderness, does not stop. Yes, He disciplines His children, but He continues to fulfill His promise despite their sin. And the Lord will ultimately bring about His blessing to His people. And sometimes it comes in unexpected ways. So the second thing I want us to see is the Lord's blessing 
may come in unexpected ways. We see this first, this unexpected way that it comes is there's blessing and grace to Balaam, actually. Right? He's not even a child of God. According to Second Peter, he's a deceiver. He's a false teacher, a false prophet, who, prophet who's hungry and greedy for money. But yet the Lord blesses him. And how does it come to him? In an unexpected way. Through a dumb donkey. God blesses this false prophet. So even non-Christian, if you don't know Christ today, let me encourage you. Don't listen to the foolish foolish preacher. Don't listen to his slow words or don't just be distracted by his slow speech. Don't evaluate the deliverer, but evaluate the message. The donkey warned Balaam, if you're not in Christ today, if you've not followed him, if you've not committed your life to knowing and pursuing him, here today, the Lord wants you to turn from sin. Evaluate the message. Evaluate God and his word. He is not leaving you in your sin. He wants you to turn and repent and believe in him. That you might have life in him. And perhaps you weren't expecting today to be the, the day that your life changes forever. But maybe even today you might believe because of his word. I think unexpected way number two that blessing comes is this blessing of Israel is from Balaam, right? Usually we expect the blessing to, to be from God himself. And we know ultimately this blessing is coming from God. God's the one who's banned Balaam from speaking curses. But the actual blessing is from the mouth of this prophet, Balaam. And so even for for you, God's blessings may come in some unexpected ways. It may come from the mouth of a child. It could come from people. Israel's not expecting this blessing from Balaam. They don't even know, really, what God's doing, probably. Nowhere in here does it say that Balaam, Balak, the donkey, or anybody went to Israel and told him this. They're just kind of off in the distance being observed by Balak and Balaam. And the Lord approaches Balaam. So they're not expecting this blessing. They're not expecting God to be blessing them through this prophet. But he does. So you Christian, don't think that God's blessings to you can only come directly from God. I think that's part of why we gather as a church. Yes, we gather today to hear God's word preached and taught. We gather for prayer. We gather for praise and singing. But hopefully you too are being encouraged by the voices of your brothers and sisters here 
as they sing to our great God. Isn't that a byproduct of our gathering? Is it we're encouraging, we're building up the faith of others? But even perhaps, and you might think this odd or controversial, but can't God also bless through sin? I think He does. doesn't mean He's He's proud of sin or someone else's sin. But can't he still bless through sin? I think he does. I think you see this in the life of Joseph, whose brothers sold him into slavery, taken to Egypt. And what's Joseph's words as Genesis closes? He says to his brothers, what you intended for evil... God intended for good. What you intended for evil, God intended, God used for His good to preserve His people. Why? So that He can fulfill His blessing to Israel through Joseph. So could it not still be true today that God uses sin in this world to bless some of you, His children? I think He does. He even blesses us, as we saw earlier, in, in salvation. I think that's perhaps God's greatest way of blessing us, by sa- saving and sanctifying, purifying His people. And we even see Romans 8.28. You guys probably know it, or at least a lot of you may know it. All things work together for the good of those who were called according to His purpose. All things, good, bad, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. So everything works to the good of God's children. It doesn't mean only when you can see good coming from it. It doesn't mean when life turns out rosy like it did for Job when he goes through these tribulations brought to him by Satan, when he loses livestock and possessions and family, health, and God restores it. It doesn't mean just that. It means everything works together for the good of God's children who are called according to his purpose. So even if you can't see today the good coming from something bad that happened 10 years ago or something that's coming in the future, even if it doesn't work out from an earthly perspective of good, could it not still be good if God uses that to draw you to himself? Could God not use suffering in your life, hardship in your life, to increase your faith, to draw you close like he's got you under his wing. He says, don't worry, I got this. You're blessed. You're blessed through me. I think he does. So I want you to hear this. Don't waste your hardship. Don't waste suffering or tribulation 
Don't waste it even when you think something comes to you unexpectedly. Let it draw you near to your God. Because all people are supposed to respond in worship and reliance upon God. And so that also means non-Christian. There's a warning for you in this passage. I don't want you to ignore it. God uses the weak things to display His glory. God uses the weak things to display His grace and His mercy. God used the donkey to spare Balaam's life. God uses weak things to display His grace and His mercy. So if you're here without Christ... Don't waste this time. The Lord desires that none should perish. He desires that you not turn and walk out of this building without repenting. And so I ask you today, consider the greatest blessing if you're without Christ that you could ever have. It's salvation. It's not money like Balaam sought. It's not fame. It's not power. It's salvation in Christ alone. Would you receive him today so that you don't get the curse of hell? And so I think the point of Numbers 22, the whole reason I think it's in the Bible, Israel doesn't know at this time God's blessing them. But we see that God's blessings can't be thwarted. God's blessings can't be stopped. And we see that God blesses his people even in unexpected ways. So I hope this produces in you a trust in our great God who's faithful to the end. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your blessings that we have in Christ that we know that if you've begun that good work in us, it will not stop. Nothing puts it on hold you're faithful to the end. You'll work in us, your children. And I ask that if there's anyone here today, if they are without you, that they would see you have chosen the weak in this world to display your greatness. You've chosen the weak in this world to display your grace and your mercy in Christ. And that you desire that anyone here today would repent of sin and believe in you bowing their knee to King Jesus. Would you do work in us? Would you change us for your glory? As in Christ's name we pray, amen.